Fantastic. What a morning. What a incredible morning. Um, I don't know about you, but yeah, times like that of worship are just stunning. Um, I want to say happy Father's Day to you. I hope uh, new dads, older dads, people who've got dads are having a good day. If Father's Day is difficult for you, then my prayer is that the God of all comfort would comfort you this day. Um, but I just want to say a fresh, happy Father's Day. Um, I'm a dad and it's great to be a dad. I was in London yesterday um, and with my 84-year-old dad and my three siblings, we got to walk over, it's a walk, it's not a climb, over the O2. And it was fantastic to do that. Um, I've realised as I said that I was going to tr- drop a massive hint from my own kids and not one of them's in the room today. So uh, check out the recording kids, uh, hint, hint. Um, Fantastic. We're, we're starting part two of our sermon series on Ephesians. Um, we've encouraged you, if you're part of Redeemer, or even if you're not, um, to uh, use these books, um, Transformed Life, and now we're into Transformed Living. Um, two parts of the same letter. Um, they're really useful daily readings to get you stuck into some of what we're talking about through Ephesians uh, in this series. And in part two, part one, we, we looked at, excuse me, my phone keeps going. In part one, we looked at who God is, what he has done, and who he says we now are, if you believe in Jesus and if you follow him. And in part two, we're going to be looking at the fruit of that, how we live out or how we walk in a manner that is worthy of what God has done in Jesus Christ. Thank you, bro. Um, he knows me well. Uh, well done, Debs. Um, so, and it's important that we get it that way round, that we get the order right. If we, as elders, come to you and say, well, this is how you need to live, and nothing else. If you're not equipped with knowledge from God, from revelation direct from himself to you, and with power through the Holy Spirit, it doesn't matter how hard or good life looks like, it'll look more like this picture here of the famous leaning tower of pizza, okay? If we don't have the foundation of God's grace in our lives, you know, at best your life will be trying to shore things up as you try and do good works. But ultimately, it will be like the other building. Ultimately, it will collapse and fall to nothing. So we've got to get it the right way round. So we, we hope as elders that you've been marinating your mind and your heart in Ephesians 1 to 3, the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has accomplished. And if you haven't, keep going back there. Marinate, marinate in the gospel of Jesus before you even take that step of, now what, Lord? Okay? But here we are. Here we are. It starts off in a moment, therefore. And the therefore in verse 1 of chapter 4 is, is signifying we're moving from exposition to exhortation. Those are big words, aren't they? What God has done and what we will now be and do in light of that. Um, I want us to understand we live in a very individualistic culture, okay? We tend to appropriate things on the basis of God and me, um, and, and culturally, I'm hugely like that. What I want us to understand and appreciate here is that when we go through these verses and Paul unpacks things, how we're going to live 
in a manner that is worthy of God's call on our lives. It's done always in the context of the church. It's never, uh, Tom's a really humble guy. Yeah, we're going to be talking about some Christian virtues that are not uh, to be isolated virtues in and of themselves. God doesn't want a group of lovely individual people. Yeah, what he wants is his manifold wisdom on display in his church. Nothing less, nothing less. He doesn't want um, a group of people who just get on and are really nice with each other. He wants a spirit-filled people who are one, who are one. We'll be unpacking that a little bit more. So Billy Graham put it like this. He said, you cannot build a superstructure on a cracked foundation. So we have to have the foundation of grace before we can move on to good works. Okay? As it said earlier, I think in chapter 3, we are God's workmanship. The church is his workmanship. But we are created for good works. Hallelujah. Let's read through uh, verses 1 to 6 together. They'll come up on the screen. And then we're just going to unpack those a little bit this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I love it when... You come and you, you've been reading your commentaries, you've been praying, you're working things out, and then you arrive with the people of God and you're reminded that there's one Holy Spirit speaking to and through all of us. The songs we sing, the, the prayers that are prayed, it's wonderful, it's staggering and beautiful, and it's a privilege to be part of that. So Paul, right at the beginning, I therefore, therefore, he's here He's saying, in light of all that I've painted, this picture, this beautiful picture of the gospel, what God has achieved through Christ, in light of this, therefore, he's urging, okay? Now, this isn't a forceful, like, you will do this, but it is, I mean it, I mean it, okay? What God has done, we are to live lives that are worthy, live lives, we're, we're made for good works, we're made for this. Brothers and sisters, made for it. He's urging, there's a pleading, there's an urgency in this. There's not a forcing or a wagging of the finger, but there is a seriousness and a solemnness to this. Um, John Stott, who is a pretty famous theologian, he puts it like this. He says that in chapters one to three, we've gone from mind-stretching theology. And in chapter four onwards in Ephesians, we move into down-to-earth, concrete implications in everyday life. Somebody just prayed that. Um, everyday life, from exposition to exaltation. From what God has done to what we must be and do. Okay? Now, 
If you've been raised in New Frontiers or in, in any church culture where, quite rightly, it's by grace I'm saved, um, there might be a little bit in you that thinks, well, Tom, are you, are you trying to put something on me here? It's by grace I'm saved, right? Not by works. You're absolutely right. It is by grace that you've been saved through faith and not by works. Our boast is in Jesus Christ. But as I said already, we are his workmanship. We're made, what for? We're created for good works. There's nothing in Paul that says, let go and let God. It's much more like, see what God has done. Let's go. Let's go. It's, it's empowered, grace-empowered lives that God is longing for and that he delights in. This morning, I've, I've uh, imaginatively titled this sermon, One. <laughs> uh, big uh, one. That's as small as I could get, as succinct as I get. We're going to be looking at the unity of God's church. God's priority of the unity of his church. And also how that unity, the very unity of his church, of all believers, all believers, not just Redeemer, Relational Mission, New Frontiers, all believers, all those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is a unity that God has created that he calls us to maintain. And that unity is rooted in the very oneness of God. The very oneness of God. There's no stronger grounds of that. So from verse 2, walking in a manner worthy of the calling on our lives. Paul says we're to live. Walk is, is live. It's a forward, forward movement. Now, in this life as a, a Christian, it won't always be like everything's tickety-boo. I'm just getting more and more Christ-like with every day. It's probably more going to be like this and occasionally like this and then back up like that. But the general trajectory of your life is that you see God's grace to you. It's being received. We're not, we're not those who receive God's grace in vain. We're those who receive his grace and we are changed. That's why we've called it transformed life and transformed living. We've been utterly changed, made new. <laughs> and, and in our lives with one another, how we relate to one another, how we speak to one another, how we think of one another, how we love one another. Paul says this, he says, we're to do it in all humility and gentleness. Now, in our culture, that, that sounds very sensible. In Paul's day, and in all the pagan, non-church, if you like, cultures of his day, to say, be humble, would have been like, what? That was not a virtue. That was not a word that they'd be like, yeah, I, I want to be humble. Okay, It was a word that signified a, a mindset of a slave. A mindset of somebody who really just had very little self-respect. There was no sort of masculinity strength about it. I, I read one commentary, and the commentator said it's derived from a word from a plant that creeps along the ground. It crawls. It's got no power in itself to get up. This word here that Paul's signifying is a lowliness. There's a sense in which, when we, for a believer, when you look at Christ, you should, if, you, if, if he's revealed himself to you, you will feel humble, you will be humble. But when we look in the mirror as well, 
You'll be humbled. You see yourself and your sin in light of his perfection. And you're humbled. Okay, but, but also there's a sense in which there's a choice in this. When we relate to one another, I prefer you. There's nothing of self-assertion. But there's everything of like, how can I serve you? And gentleness. Gentleness, another word that's been used, meekness. Okay, this is not meek and mild, isn't it? Tom's so meek and mild, he's gentle. If I appear weak to you, yeah, that's not gentleness. This gentleness that Paul's writing about is he's saying, actually, what it is is strength. It's strength under self-control. Strength under control for the service of others. Strength, not a weakness. Okay, Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth. Those like this are going to inherit the earth. <laughs> I'm not quite sure. I'll unpack that further, but it's stunning. Humility and gentleness. Jesus himself, he's the one, the archetypal, who has shown us what this looks like. Next slide, please, James. He it says in Philippians 2, Jesus the man God, the one who's lived the perfect life. Jesus, who, though he was God, did not think equality with God as something to grasp, to hold on to, to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He humbled, he lowered himself and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God, that's God the Father, and died a criminal's death on the cross he's the one we look to to see how we interact with each other humility gentleness I love it as a dad um, when uh, my son who's a strapping 16 year old lad he's strong takes after his old man um, and, uh, and yeah, <laughs> thank you brother uh, he uh, I love watching him play with his 10-year-old sister sometimes. And I love the fact that she can be a bit boisterous sometimes. Um, she's, she's, she's pretty competitive, actually. Um, and she's full of beans. And I love that about her. And I love watching them play fight sometimes. And I love watching how my, my son will... I don't have to embarrass him. He's not in the room. But my son will use his strength to serve his much smaller, much weaker sister... They'll have a good old rumble, yeah? And, and he'll, he'll just gently, you know, throw her off or whatever, let her climb over him and stuff like that. And it's fantastic to watch. It doesn't always go like that. It's, it, it, it's, it's fantastic also to watch when she might accidentally hurt him, okay? She flukes a kick or a punch somewhere or something like that. Um, I'm not encouraging sibling fighting, by the way. Um, I'm just saying as a father, one of the things, seeing them play like that, and, and she might accidentally get him, and I love it when he chooses not to retaliate. He chooses to be gentle, he could. She's hurt him. He would be by rights. You know, how, many often, how often do you hear that from your kids? Well, she did that. He did that. I was only doing what was, what was my right. And yet he, he'll choose not to. He'll like not go like that, although sometimes, God bless him, 
Like, uh, you know, as I say, it doesn't always end that well. But I love seeing that dynamic in my own kids. And I think that's a tiny glimpse of what God our Father delights in when he sees brothers and sisters, you know, brothers and sisters interacting with one another this way. Now I feel like I've just told you to all run out there and rumble. Like, uh, that's not what I'm saying. But interacting with one another in humility, okay? And when a brother does sin against you, not seeking retaliation, not going off and complaining, but actually going to him, going to her and saying, you, you, you've done this, you hurt me this way. Not to get them back or put them down, but so they'd be restored. So that the unity of the spirit would be maintained in the bond of peace. The next two, patience and forbearance. Or, or bearing with one another. Well, let's be honest, we all have our foibles and faults. Um, some of us more than others. But the truth of it is, any community of people that get together are going to need patience and forbearance. But this isn't just the everyday stuff, okay? Other, other uh, versions of the Bible talk about long-suffering, okay? You know when somebody says to you, um, oh, I don't suffer fools gladly, I don't suffer fools gladly, me. Okay, what they really mean is they've got a short temper. They've got a short fuse. And if you upset me, I'm going to tell you. I'm not going to hold back. I don't suffer fools gladly. Well, this, thank God, is the exact opposite. It's like, it's, it's like somebody who might keep coming at you, keep causing you grief, and you don't retaliate, you don't push back. You suffer long. Um, there, there's some Old Testament scripture that talks about God in this way, that he is slow to anger. And I think some literal translations mean like he's long-nosed, which is unusual, isn't it? He's, he's got a long nose. And it's in contrast to a bull that has a very short nose and is known for having a short temper. Okay, God who is the Lord, he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, but abounding in steadfast love. He is long-suffering, okay? He's long-suffering with all of us because he longs for us to say yes to him through Jesus Christ. And then if you believe in Jesus for your salvation, you, to get your dad angry, your heavenly father angry with you, you've got to provoke him. Okay, I'm, again, I'm not encouraging you to try that out, but his heart is gentle and lowly. He's not in a rush to punish you or to tell you off or to cause hardship. But his love is abounding. It's gushing. You, you don't even have to go and poke him to get it. His love, in contrast, abounds. It pours out. The love of the Father through Jesus Christ. We've, we've spent a few weeks looking at that. All that he's accomplished through Jesus Christ. Salvation, forgiveness of sinners, restoration, a redeemed people, a beautiful church through whom he's saying, look to the whole of the cosmos. Look, there is my manifold wisdom. There. This is a picture, this is a pilot. The church is a pilot of what God intends to do with all of creation one day. He's going to unite all things 
under Christ. And he's done it first in his church. First in his church. Hallelujah. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and rich in love. He is. Hallelujah. And we're called to be the same, to be like that with one another. I want to um, just share something, uh, the real pragmatics of this. Some time ago, um, I I needed to go and see an older brother and and, um, just say, oh, you did a few things, you said a few things, and it hurt me. And to my brother's credit, I'd left it so long. I'd left it months. I'd stewed away. And I hadn't gone to him eagerly. I'd been passive. And that allowed the enemy to get under my skin a bit. But in the end, I was like, hold on, this isn't right. This is not right. So I went to him, and in humility, bless him, he was real with me. He said, to be honest, Tom, I I can't remember exactly what I did say. But do you know what? In humility, with a heart that was eager to maintain unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, he said, I'm sorry. If I've said anything that made you feel this way. And actually, it was so helpful. It revealed insecurities in me. I didn't really have much to say to, for him to say sorry for. I didn't have much of an issue. But I needed to be going to him and saying this. And how eager he was to maintain this unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. I had another brother, not more recently, come to me. And it was the other way around and said, Tom, you know, you know when we met way back then you said a few things to me and that really hurt and do you know what what a brother what a brother that he came to me and he chose to say look you hurt me and there was nothing about his demeanor that was like you hurt me and you're an elder you should know better actually he came to me as a brother it's like it hurt he gave me every opportunity to maintain maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace and say, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like that. So I commend that. I commend those brothers to you. Um, I commend that behavior, humility, gentleness, patience, and long-suffering. We're going to need it, but it's not anything that we create, okay? All of this is something that we maintain. It wasn't... um, it wasn't, on the day of Pentecost, it was not that the people of God really related well to each other or that they had clear structures that they liked, liked to follow or even that they had laid out their clear stance on certain doctrines. It wasn't any of those things that identified them as the people of God. It was the Holy Spirit pouring out on them that told the world, these are my people, this is my church. It is the indwelling of the one Holy Spirit in each and every member of the body that identifies the church as his, as his. Um, I work as a a physio um, in neurology. Yeah. And uh, so nerves, brain, things like that, spinal cord, and stuff like that. And um, I've only ever seen it a few times, but sometimes when the connection between the head and a member of the body is so damaged, the head no longer recognises that member. 
So the most severe case I've ever seen, it. I was with a colleague, and he's like six foot four with massive hands, and this other person, this, this person who had a big stroke, was much, much smaller. And we held up this person's left hand, this person's right hand, and my colleague's other hand, which was really different. And we said, which one of those two is your right hand? And he chose my colleague's hand because there wasn't the, the oneness, the connection there. And Paul, Paul, one of Paul's favourite ways of, of describing the church is the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. We are the members, the body. And it's his Holy Spirit, a little bit like the nervous system, indwelling each member. A body needs to work in unison. It needs to have harmony. When it doesn't, it, it all goes very wrong and looks very peculiar. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that brings that unity. But it is our lives outworked, walked in a manner worthy that reveals it to the world, that reveals what God has made, what he has done. Now, Paul, coming on to verse 4, where he talks about one body, one spirit. Paul is grounding the unity of the church on the very oneness of God himself. I um, don't know about you, but when I was at school, in fact, I'm worse now, I was not good at maths. Really struggled with it. Um, I needed a tutor to get through my GCSE. Hallelujah, thank you God for Mr. Alexander. Um, he got me through. He, he helped me get math GCSE. Um, no good at, at, um, at numbers. There is a bit of a joke actually amongst physios. I don't think there's any here. But I've yet to meet a physio who can do maths. I mean, <laughs> I, like, we're terrible. We're terrible. If we say, yep, 10 repetitions, it always means at least 11 or 12. Um, so you, you watch out for that when you, when you have physio. How many exercises should I do? They'll count up to 10, and then there's always another one or two to come. Um, but Jackie side, never been good at maths. But sometimes numbers really do matter. And in these scriptures... There's some key numbers, like Paul talks about one spirit, one Lord, that's Jesus, the Son, and one God, the Father. He's highlighting the triunity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Interestingly enough, he's almost reversed the, he has reversed the order here. Normally, it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Here, he's gone Holy Spirit, Son, and Father. Just an observation. But he's pointing out, he wants us to see that the very unity of the church that he's spoken of is grounded in the very triunity of God himself. Okay? And he's talking to pagans. He's talking to uh, people who do not know the concept even of one God. So Ephesus was a rich and diverse cosmopolitan place, but it was full of Greek and Roman gods. And generally speaking, the, the, those nations understood there were tons of gods, and it's just you pick and choose which god you want to go with. But actually, God's people, God's people have always known that there is only one there's only one Lord. We've sung it. We've prayed it today. There's only one Lord of Lords, King of Kings. There is only one. Here, O Israel, Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. And Paul, Paul's echoing this. He's echoing this and saying, actually, this, he's the one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then, just to really 
pack a punch. Make out. There's seven ones here. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Seven. Now, when you come across seven in the Bible, pause for a minute, okay? Because it signifies the perfection, the utter completeness of God himself, okay? So Paul, again, is saying, actually, the unity of the church, as well as being grounded in the unity of God, it's it's grounded in the perfection of God. It's untouchable. There is unity. Now, that's hard probably to get our heads around when we live in a world with so much disunity everywhere around us. And often, if we're honest, a lot of disunity in the church, in the visible church. But Paul's talking about a unity that God has established by his spirit, the indwelling spirit in each and every member. And that's what he calls us to manifest, to live out. And he starts off here, one body. He starts off, if you like, right where we are, the body of Christ, the people. Okay, I've talked about that already, how you need the head and the members of the body to be interacting well, and one spirit one spirit. And the one hope here, we, we've sung some lyrics along these lines today. The one hope we have is that, yes, we are united, but, but ultimately, earlier in Ephesians, it talks about God uniting all things, all things, the entire cosmos under Christ, all things. There is a day, there is a day when the Lord Jesus will return and he'll make all things new. He'll perfect all things. There is that day. Like the reason your elders will exhort you is we're not there yet. I long for that day. I long for that day, whether it's Jesus returning or he calls me home first, where there's no temptation, there's no sin, there's no death, there's no pain or sorrow. But we're not there yet. So we will exhort you. We will say, live this way. If you come and seek wisdom from our Father, come to brothers and sisters seeking counsel with the saints, then expect encouragement to an an urging, exhortation. Walk this way. Because we need it, all of us. We need it. But the foundation is always God's grace. Always God's grace. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. (laughs) There's one Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one whose name saves. There's only one who shed his blood on the cross, whose blood can clean you or I from sin. There's only one who would reconcile individuals, but a people for himself to God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. There's only one Lord. You know, if I, if I uttered that short sentence in some places, Jesus Christ is Lord, or in some times, I would be killed instantly. <laughs> what a privilege we get to shout it out here. That's stunning. Jesus Christ is Lord. <laughs> From the heart with our lips. Hallelujah. 
One faith. If there's one Lord, there's one faith. This isn't talking about um, all the new frontier values. Or all the, this is talking about the key things that all Christians believe. You cannot be a Christian and say something like, well, Jesus Christ, uh, he was an amazing, godly, moral man, maybe a prophet. Um, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay? There's only one. There's only one. And he is Lord. Baptism. I love water baptism. Paul's talking about water baptism here. And the reason in Redeemer we make a bit of a song and dance when somebody is baptised is because we should do. We are fortunate enough to do that and not be worried what will happen with that person. Okay, But baptism symbolises I'm, I'm committed to God. I'm now in Christ and he's in me. But also we are one. That's what it symbolises. We are one. I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm part of the church, part of his people. There's great commitment there. In some cultures, you know, it's not um, until somebody has publicly declared their faith in Jesus through baptism that they're finally, excuse the phrase, excommunicated like from whatever religion they followed before or their family does. It's at that moment where they've publicly professed, I've died to the world and sin and I'm risen in Christ through water baptism it's then that they are cast out but actually more importantly it's, it's if you like then that they're thrust into the kingdom of God into his family his household that's stunning I'm going to wrap up here um, so I want to encourage you if you are a follower of Christ how are you doing Are you out of step with a brother or sister and you need to be eager? You need to take action. Go and see them. Go and speak to them. Okay, the biblical precedent is actually if you've been wronged, you go to your brother and sister. If he won't hear you, then you get another brother and sister and and have their support and talk through it. But that's the precedent. I'd encourage you to listen to Steph Liston's preach some months ago. Super helpful on this stuff. Super helpful. Yeah, if you're anything like me, grown up in an English culture, we'll be thinking, well, you know, Al did this. He said that. He hasn't done anything, by the way. We're we're good. Um, You know, know, why should I go and tell him? Well, he can work it out. The Holy Spirit will convict him, and then he can come, and he can say sorry to me. There we go. Okay, that, that would be the culture. But the biblical culture is actually, ow, you know, when you did that, when you said that, like, that you feel like that. I just want to say with Al, he's always ahead of the game. Bless you. Always eager. If there's something that could have caused offence, he'd be so quick to say, brother, I said that and I didn't mean this or I didn't want you to feel that. And I'd be like, well, I didn't. <laughs> but thanks, thanks for checking in anyway. He's eager. He's not passive. He's quick to make sure we've got unity. Hallelujah. Thank you, brother. It's a great model. And boy, oh boy, is it convicting sometimes. (laughs) When I think, I wish I was more like that. I wish I was quick to say, hey, let's be right here. Let's be right. And when a brother or sister comes to you and says, Tom, come on. Yeah, be quick. They're not trying to get you. Or say, he did this, dad, 
Yeah, it's none of that. It's in love, in love that we're humble, that we're gentle, that we're patient, that we bear with one another. Love, the love of God, agape is the word that's used. Okay, this is a love that seeks the good of others always. It's a benevolence that is staggering. I'm always going to think the best, (laughs) says God. Um, I'll always try and think the best and hope the best and wish the best and do the best for you. That's the core. If you like, that's the crown where humility, patience, forbearance, long-suffering, it all sits in the love of God. That's the love that the Father and Son and Spirit have enjoyed for eternity. And they want us to be caught up in that with them and with one another. As I am in you, Father, and you are in me, let them be in me, Jesus prayed. And let them be one, as we're one. Let them be one. (laughs) A staggering. And Paul's outlining here how that prayer that Jesus prayed back then is true. He has done it. Hallelujah. If you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to encourage you this morning. That you can know, you can know a beautiful, staggering community. But before that, and you can walk in a life that delights your Creator God and that has beautiful value, fruit that lasts. But more than that, you can, you can say yes to Jesus Christ this morning. He's shed blood, died on the cross for you. Don't wait, don't wait, be eager. And if you're a brother, sister in Christ, be eager to maintain unity in the bond of peace. Please don't wait. But please, if there's lots of you who've got lots of issues with me, please form an orderly queue (laughs) um, and be patient with me and gentle with me. Um, God bless you. Amen.